Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today my guest is Evan Bell. Evan, how are you doing? I am well, thanks for asking. Good stuff. So I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. So Evan, can you, you know, briefly introduce yourself, you know, tell us about your current role as you know director of product management at Frostbite? Uh yeah, I'll try to be brief. Um I've been in the game development uh, basically since I graduated college in 1999, um, I entered as a programmer and I've worked on a lot of games, 16 ship titles now. Um, most recently I was technical director at Bioware. Um, but this opportunity to become a <clears throat> product manager at Frostbite, um, kind of just popped up out of the blue because my predecessor in this role left the company. Uh, and they approached me because I've been working with Frostbite for years. I had even worked at Frostbite earlier as a senior engineer. Um, so I was like, well, I don't know a lot about product management, but I know a lot about technical stuff and um, Frostbite generally. So I'll, I'll give it a go. I didn't know if this would be my permanent career change. So inside of Frostbite, we have uh, different product areas. And I am the director of a product area called Core Systems, which is... Some of the stuff you would associate with low-level engine, like um, memory management, file I.O., those types of things in a cross-platform game engine. But it also kind of includes what would be more mid-layer, like how features that make the game um, buildable on Frostbite, like uh, networking, um, the object model, and um, how levels are constructed, um, how things are streamed in and out for for like large levels. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty big team. Um, and I think in terms of people count, it's just a little bit smaller than our rendering team, which is like historically been always been the biggest uh, team in Frostbite. Uh, so my primary role is planning. We do two releases a year and I try to understand the priorities of, of Frostbite and all the game teams that use Frostbite and build a plan of what, what we can do with the capacity that we have. And some of that will be finishing things we've already started, and some of it will be new stuff. We have different engagements, whether they're tactical or strategic, longer-term investments, and we do a lot of support. We do a lot of interrupt-driven frontline support with game teams as well. Uh, I also act as kind of a technical executive producer where I just kind of help like find... Um, if someone goes, I don't know who to talk to about this, I connect those dots and like, we're trying to understand our way around this problem. Can you help us? And so we do a lot of communicating with various game teams and even internally, Frostbite itself is not a small team. Uh, so a lot of my job is just talking to people and understanding their needs and trying to get those needs met. Okay. And, you know, just going back a bit, you said at Bioware just previously, you was technical you know director what does that involve on a you know a day-to-day basis because you know you do come from a technical background so and you have been a you know a programmer previously so what does a how does a technical director you know differ to like the software engineer which you have been um well software engineer of course is just very much i'm writing the code to get things done uh a lead programmer 
is more tactically oriented lead. A technical director is more strategic. So they're looking farther ahead. One of the principal focuses for a technical director is to uh, navigate risks and anticipate risks. Like, well, we aren't dealing with these risks today, but before we ship this game or before we ship this update, we will have to mitigate or um, navigate those risks. So uh, that's a technical director kind of has to zoom out to the 50,000 um, foot level and look down and say, like, what does the whole landscape look like? And also beyond risks, they have to notice opportunities. Like, what is the opportunity if we were to improve lighting build times by 50% for the team? Like, what could we do? So the technical director might then make a strategic decision to, like, we're going to pull off some engineers to invest in optimizing our lighting builds or something. This is just an example. Um, and they also might see, like, you know, when we release an update for this game, we really struggle with this part. We develop the update, but re releasing it is hard. So what can we zoom into that part and focus on, like, how do we get good at this part? Uh, so the technical director usually isn't um, doing a lot of direct, like, coding. Although when I was a technical director, I did some. I liked to peel bugs off of our uh, crashes, like our live crashes. I was the technical director of Anthem Live. Um, and I also did lots of code reviews because uh, the technical director also is responsible for uh, the quality of the engineering effort. Okay. So, yeah, you said the technical director generally doesn't do much, you know, code work themselves. How about, you know, a lead? Uh, how, how much coding would a lead do versus a regular software engineer? Because a regular software engineer, for the most part, all they're doing is code. Obviously, they might be writing documentation along with it and doing some research along with it, but it's still related to the code, you know, the coding itself. Um, yeah, I would. I usually describe this in like a rough, div, like average division of time. Um, when I was a lead uh, for like Anthem's game development, um, also I also before Anthem, I worked on the Old Republic as a server lead. I still did quite a bit of programming then, but it was more like a 40-60 split. Um, and uh, I'm kind of a morning person, so I would usually do my programming in the morning and meetings and like leadership type engagements um, in the afternoon when everyone else um, was around. Um, so it, whereas a technical director almost shifts entirely into like the... Um, the uh, administrative side, like spreadsheets, uh, your task database, you know, looking at uh, metrics, like like key performance indicators are a thing that um, technical directors have to define and have to track and have to um, define what the action is if those things aren't um, where they're supposed to be. Uh, like one, one thing that a live service technical director would be very concerned with is um, mean time between failure what is the how often does your game crash whether it's on the server or the client um and what is what number should that be oh well it should be zero but like they want to see that number going down if it's on internet some unacceptable place okay and you know all of the you know companies that you're working for they're all owned by ea games and so one, what has made you stay at, you know, effectively EA for so long? And two, because you've jumped around in, you know, 
EA, including Bioware, you know, where you went and then you went away from it and then you went back to Bioware. How is that process for jumping around, you know, these different studios and organizations within EA? Is, is it a pretty simple thing or do you have to effectively go through some major recruitment process again because it's a different, you know, section of it? Um, so just to be clear, I haven't spent my entire career at EA. Uh, I was nine years at an independent developer in Austin, Texas, that is now, I believe, defunct, called Edge of Reality, uh, did um, cross-platform console titles. Uh, the second part of my career has been all at EA. And what you're describing is what we call internal mobility. Um, EA is actually very uh, supportive of internal mobility. It is a way to do different things and grow your career and kind of grow the scope of what you've seen and done. Uh, so inside of EA, I started out at a studio called Pogo working on small download titles because I had gotten tired of working a lot of overtime to make a like a like a console game that wasn't going to really be up to the quality I w- would wanting to see. Uh, so I started at Pogo. But at that time, social games were starting to take off, and Pogo was experimenting with it. And at the end of this experimental phase, they said, like, we're going to go do Flash games on Facebook. And I'm like, I'm not writing Flash for a living. So I applied (laughs) to Bioware in Austin, which at the time was working on the Old Republic. And you just, you apply to open roles, just like anyone else. Uh, We do have some rules, like, you're not supposed to apply for a role unless you've talked to your manager. and if you've applied for a role, that's the first question they should ask you is like, have you talked to your manager that you've applied for the role? Um, and so I applied over there and I, they interviewed me just like they would interview an external candidate. And uh, and you should expect that you're competing with external candidates too, because they're going to be trying to get people in. We have our own internal recruiters that try very hard to match people to open roles. Um, so you interview and if you get the, the gig, you specify a start date and you, you go and that's your job and you maintain like everything else that you would expect for staying at the same company, like your paid time off, your retirement accounts, like all those things just kind of stay the same. Cause those are all EA wide. Um, those only will change if you change major geographies, uh, which I did do cause I worked on the old Republic until it launched. And then I applied for a role uh, to work on the physics team in Sweden uh, for Frostbite. And when Frostbite was just starting to be used for non-Battlefield games inside of um, Electronic Arts. Uh, at that time, Frostbite was about 54 people. And to work there, you had to live in Stockholm. So I applied for that role and I successfully interviewed for it. And we moved to Sweden. And that's when some of those other things change, like your time off changes, your your um, benefits change. Like in the U.S., a big part of your benefits is like your health insurance. But since Sweden has a nationalized system, we use just Swedish healthcare when we live there. Uh, and the on the flip side, when I went back to Bioware, also my relocation was covered. I, sh- I should have mentioned that. Like the international relocation was a part of the role. And I got the same international relocation package that an external candidate coming from North America would have received. So um, that's, and it's quite uh, a robust relocation 
uh, package. It was, um, and they help you find an apartment. They did everything. So worked there for two years, um, started talking to Bioware again, uh, because at the time my kids were about a year and a half, they were going to just had their second birthday and we were worried about quality grandparent time and being that far away. So, uh, I was looking at roles outside of EA and, uh, there was a role opening up on a, a, a team that was ideating an early RPG title at um, Bioware. So I went to work for them again because I had, had good relationships with all of them. I didn't like leave in a huff or anything. Um, and from then I worked on some titles that didn't make it out. I worked on Shadow Realms, which was canceled. Uh, I worked on some patches for Dragon Age 3. And then I worked on the Old Republic again, and worked on one of the the coolest updates to that game called Knights of the Fallen Empire, which has an awesome trailer. Uh, if you, anyone has seen it, um, all their trailers of- are so amazing. <laughs> their trailers are better than most of the movies. <laughs> their trailers are so good for the Old Republic. Yeah, they're it's brilliant. Like as a father of twins, that 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 video that trailer contains like this the twins that. <laughs> that uh one kills the other it's like oh that hits you right in the feels um so i worked on the older problem for six months mostly focusing i was a server lead mostly focusing on optimization because we had our own um infrastructure like this is before the cloud that game launched before the cloud was really a, a thing uh so we had purchased all the our own data center and infrastructure and so every amount of cpu time we could save on the servers was uh was dollars and cents for the business. Um, and it also improves the experience of the uh, players. Um, slow processes lead to perceived latency for uh, multi- massively multiplayer games. Um, so I worked at, on the Old Republic and then went to work on Anthem. I was the first person in Austin to work on Anthem. And I worked on Anthem for five years until Bioware decided to discontinue development of Anthem. And um, I worked somewhat, some on Dragon Age 4, um, which has been called Dreadwolf. Uh, and, uh, but I wasn't, they had their own technical director, um, so they didn't need another technical director on the project. Um, so I was kind of like a, uh, a lead without a project at that point. And I had just been doing some very close work with Frostbite related to some uh, unreleased games. And as a as a just like keep Evan busy <laughs> type work. And, and because that was going well, Frostbite approached me about the director of product management role. So I applied for that role and, um, and I've been in there since the November 2021. Okay. Uh, you know, Dragon Age Four, obviously, a you know, uh, will be the latest title in a beloved franchise. When can we expect you know Dragon Age Four? I can't comment on that. Uh, how, how far are we into development? Are we, if not specifics, uh, any new announcements coming up for Dragon Age Four? Uh, you can look at the Bioware blog for all announcements related to Dragon Age Four. Okay. 
And, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, cancellation, you know, you worked on a game that got cancelled. You know, how does that feel when you, you know, you've been working on a title that gets cancelled? Because, yeah, yeah, I know it is just, uh, you know, it is a job, you know, you still get paid. It's not like, you know, it's your own, let's say, starter where you're making something, you cancel it, you make no money from it, but it still must hurt. Um, I'm definitely in the it hurts camp. Um there's like I've read a lot online where people are have kind of a what I would consider a more mercenary attitude about it, where it's just like, whatever, it's a sunk cost. You know, I've heard that before from from a couple of people, which which I was surprised by. But the thing is, nobody works in game development. Well, at least I hope they don't. That aren't somewhat passionate about the medium, right? So. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, you're working on a game that you yourself care about, right? So to have that canceled, like you had this idea, you're working on this thing, it's in this very nascent form, it's not there yet, you know it, you know it's a long road to get it into, to make it a thing, to make it a game that matters. And then to have it canceled, um, especially if you felt like the development was going fairly well, that hurts. And you, there should be a grieving process. You should, like commiserate with the other developers and you know you know bond over that shared time together because it it is it can hurt um that being said games often do get canceled for the right reasons mm-hmm. um if a game just isn't it, it it's a it's a, it can be a mercy killing honestly because sometimes games can enter development hell that's that is that label is often applied to film like a project that just can't get made is in development hell. Uh, we are, we'll just cancel games that are in development hell. And I think it's the right thing to do. If there's no clear way to get it out. Um, and some games are effectively canceled in place where they're like reset, like, okay, well, we're going on the wrong path. We're going back to square one. Um, that's not a true cancellation. Cause you're like, we're still going to develop something that is kind of this idea or in this intellectual property. Um, but, we we're we're way off track so we need to to back up um and like a fair like a fairly public example of that was metroid prime 4 which was um being developed at a a studio in nintendo which rarely comments on cancellations said uh it wasn't going well and they had already announced it so they they felt obligated to announce its cancellation um I feel like games, it's better if they get canceled early, like mm-hmm. uh, strictly uh, from a, a dollars and cents perspective and also just for the, the sake of the game team. Um, if the idea isn't working, if you don't see it tracking or if you can't hire for critical roles or whatever the reasons are, um, then it, it's better to do it early and like uh, n- avoid the sunk costs. Um but I, I get it when you're excited about an announced title that's canceled as a game fan, that's like, you're like, oof, why did they do that? There's often a lot of kind of like assignment of blame for cancellations. So as someone who's worked at EA forever, it's, it's always EA's fault. General <laughs> perception of the public is studios good, EA bad. Yeah. So if it was canceled, it was clearly EA being EA in EA bad mode. And that's not always the case. I'll just say that um, lots of things get weighed. Studios sometimes recommend, like, we actually think we should cease development and put all our eggs in a different basket. Um, 
and like capitalize on a different opportunity instead of doing this. And as a fan, if you're like, oh, I just wanted to play that game though, like you don't care about, you probably haven't even heard about the opportunity because it's probably unannounced. So you, it that can you can be painful from the other side to be like, I was so I was looking forward to that, um, and then now it's never coming out. Oh yeah, and you know with you know games that get cancelled, there will be obviously a various stages of development from just having a few discussions to you know all the way being you know almost ready for you know release. So. Just as you know, you know, let's say active titles that are being worked on that aren't released yet, you know, to the public, internal employees will probably have some sort of process of being able to play them. Is there some sort of internal process of being able to play games that you know didn't get released but got cancelled, but you know were very playable? Is that like a reward uh, almost? Is there anything like that in EA? Um, well, there's no like library of, there's no like library of playable games that didn't get released. Um, in that sense, we do have the opportunity to play each other's games before they launch. Okay. It's not uniform and it's based on the studio's like, uh, willingness and ability, like having time to set up a play test, that kind of thing. But we do do them. It's actually a great opportunity to get more people playing your game before you go out to a wider, like, non-public test. So that's ideally a game is playable early in development, gets played often, and a, a big as big as an audience as the studio could tolerate can will play it. And then those those we do those internal play tests and. Um, we get lots of great feedback. Game developers give some of the best feedback for like bugs and for what their experience was like. Um, so I think uh, it's a, it's an opportunity inside of EA that as long as you're not, you have to weigh that against secrecy though, because a big company is leaky. Unfortunately, I wish we were better about like maintaining our secrecy. Um, we, so we, we have mixed success in that. Uh, so the, as soon as you invite a broader group of people to an unannounced title, that is one of the risks that studios have to have to weigh. Um, but I think in a lot of cases, getting that super valuable feedback into time when you can action that feedback usually uh, exceeds the risk, unless there's a business risk. Uh, like if you're working with a partner, like a like some big movie studio or some IP holder, where it's like no, it has to be absolutely kept secret that you're working on this, then then it gets more difficult. But you can still do internal playtests. Studios themselves are large and have hundreds of people working at them. So you can still get hundreds of eyes on your game. Okay. And, you know, when the Frostbite engine launched back in 08, in, you know, with Battlefield Bad Company, for, for the first few years, it was just, you know, in games that were first-person shooters, you know, Battlefield, Medal of Honor, and now it's what in Plants vs. Zombies, FIFA, you know, the golf games, Need for Speed, obviously FPS, RPG, like Mass Effect, that sort of stuff. Like, was that always the plan with Frostbite that we're gonna create this engine, Battlefield, let's Medal of Honor will be the test bed, but we'll ideally want to expand it out to so many other genres, or was it was that just kind of serendipitous and it was a surprise 
My understanding is it was more an opportunity that was taken as opposed to the plan, but I'm not a hundred percent. I wasn't there at the birth of frostbite and I wasn't one a leader at dice frostbite was an invention of the dice studio to support their titles. Um, and after battlefield three, uh, which really struck a chord, I think at the, it was a super successful game. It looked great and it featured destruction like people hadn't seen before. Oh yeah, especially for I mean even today you don't, you know, see widespread on that level that sort of destruction. Yeah, you get better destruction when they, you know, when it's actually done in a game, but yeah, like the the, the fact that you could take down, you know, buildings, it it definitely was, you know, amazing for the time. Yeah, so those those things got noticed and at the time EA just had a bunch of different internal engines and also licensed engines. Uh, like Bioware had its own engine that the original Dragon Age Origins was launched on. Uh, the Old Republic had a different engine, uh, which was a licensed engine, a bunch of internal tech. Uh, Visceral had their own engine. Need for Speed had their own engine. They they all had their own. Uh, the sports titles had a bunch of shared libraries, but there was no like. Um, second single sports engine either um and like famously like the original dead space used the 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 engine that was used for pga at the time the golf game um so there was a lot of just like a lot of reinvention going on across the company um and there's this kind of expression I like for big companies. It's like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So someone could be like, I'm going to create this awesome new dynamic lighting algorithm. And someone on the other side could be do the exactly the same work, but in a different implementation, but largely we were inspired by the same SIGGRAPH paper and went off and wrote our own thing. And I don't think that's necessarily a hundred percent bad. Like I think as a looking at a spreadsheet, if you were a CFO, you're like, why did we spend a million dollars twice to do the same thing? But um, there might be local uh, realities that affect the software development there. Anyway, I digress. Uh, The important thing is, is it looked great. It did things people hadn't seen before. It supported multiplayer. um, And it kind of just turned into like an opportunity that the EA was willing to say like, okay, we're going to internalize we're going to move all frostbite. Well, it didn't at first it wasn't we're going to move all engines to all games to frostbite. It was we are going to allow teams that are not dice to use frostbite. And at that time frostbite became its own business unit, kind of like a studio. Um but really what kind of cemented it I think was when the sports completed their evaluation and decided to migrate FIFA, which is now called FC, um over to uh, Frostbite followed by Madden. Um, and there has been a, a multi-year project that uh, we're just seeing the end of, uh, actually, because NHL is now on Frostbite as well as um, uh, we're just wrapping up the last sports title. I think it launches this year as transitioning to Frostbite. Okay. And how does the Frostbite team you know, accommodate all that? Because one of the things that you get when you have an engine and you try to use it for a bunch of different, you know, titles 
they can sort of kind of feel the same. It's like I'll see a game announcement and I'll see and I'm and I'll just know they've made in Unreal. Like the like Unreal has a certain you know feel to it. Unless you do know you know a lot of modification, but there's plenty of titles you just see them and you're just like that's definitely an Unreal game. So like how the because obviously you got FIFA, you've got you know golfing, kind of similar because it's sporty, but then you got racing with Need for Speed. Then you got Plants vs Zombies, totally different. You know you got FPS, you got RPG. How does Frostbite accommodate that to make sure you know FIFA doesn't just you know kind of end up feeling like it it is made in a Battlefield engine? Um, well, we didn't do destructible stadiums in the first one. Uh, <laughs> we probably didn't want to represent the worst sides of football. Um, so the main, the shortest answer to that question is uh, because the teams have all of the code, they are free to modify it. Um, and for like the stadium sports titles, one key different differentiator they have to have for their games is a forward renderer because they need to have really crisp lines and readable jerseys that have names and numbers on them. And a deferred renderer, which is typically used in your FPS scenario for high detail, like environments and lighting, um, they, they alias more. So it's not appropriate to do a stadium sports title with a zoomed out kind of television perspective camera, uh, it would be very swimmy and you'd see a lot of aliasing artifacts. So that's one example. Um, So we have a process, like teams can modify the code as they see fit. Uh, They can ask for help doing it. They can ask us to make a change to the engine that is like, we would really like to see you do this. and we put that in plan or we, we do it on their branch and we take it back to the engine. There's all sorts of ways that this happens. So all of these genres contribute to the whole. And some of these teams maintain um, what we internally call divergence, which is like they've changed the engine um, because they thought it was necessary to do so. But that's difference from the main line where we do development of Frostbite. Uh, ideally, we want to be able to support all the genres with no divergence. That's where we want to be because there's a cost to having all this difference. And we're kind of losing the more changes they make, we're kind of losing the value of having a central technology. So we're always trying to drive that down and kind of meet their meet them where they're at and make it so that those things that they those modifications just can live as a part of a high quality part of the engine. And then any game team can use it. Um, they also have the ability to extend the engine through this mechanism we call extensions. Uh, it's not the same, exactly the same as a plugin. Because plugin kind of implies a like a really crisp plugin architecture and interface. Um, but you can make an extension that adds an arbitrary feature that can have all its own support in the editor and its own support in the runtime. Um, and game teams have done a lot of that. When we were at Bioware making RPGs. We had to make the conversation system, for example, Bioware. It's like like a a hallmark of Bioware games is that you have a narrative that's delivered through conversations. um, And Bioware had to create a conversation system that is built on top of the general cinematic support inside of Frostbite. But the general cinematic support inside of Frostbite actually came from the first Bioware games, what we call our timeline, which is for cinematics, that was invented to support uh, RPGs that have to have 
um, conversations and also like a non-interactive um, story moments. Okay, and those sort of you know trailers that like the old Republic has, like is that done in house or is that outsourced? And how much expense is actually you know made on those trailers because they look pretty costly. Um, well, I don't know what they cost. I do know the old Republic trailers were made with an external studio, um, but there's some asset sharing. Um, like for Knights of the Fallen Empire, some of the assets the external studio made, they were down to be used in the game because games mostly can't. Well, maybe now on like Gen 5 and like high end PCs can start to use some dense assets, but still we'll have to uh, remove polys and stuff. Um, but we also have internal, we also build cinematics internally. So, game, so a cinematic or a movie sequence inside of the game itself is usually built internally. Although outsourcing could be involved for animation. Um, and we also do marketing videos. Whenever you see like, you know, this was recorded in engine. Um, that's ex- effectively a movie made inside of the engine, but then, you know, turned into an, an MP4 and shared on the internet. Um those are done internally as well uh, because they usually require frostbite expertise to actually to make them. So uh, it, those would be more difficult to outsource. Okay. And because frostbite is used on so many EA titles on so many EA studios, is it actually compulsory now to, you know, if you're an EA studio, you know, to use frostbite and like a, you know, follow question to that. If it is compulsory, or even if it isn't, if they're requiring, let's say, a new studio, which ha- you know will will be using some other engine, what's that sort of process of trying to get them onto Frostbite or onto the EA, you know, technology stack effectively? Um, so it's not compulsory; it's opt-in. Uh, if you're making a multiplayer game in EA, you do have to support you do have to plug your game into the EA player network. That's compulsory, but that's not a part of Frostbite. Um, that's We have central tech that is not Frostbite. Uh, so um, like matchmaking, we have a matchmaking service internally. Like that's not a Frostbite a technology. Um, okay. So it's not compulsory. We have like a game team kind of approach us. Like m- mostly... Most studios at EA are purchased, although we do we do create studios internally. Um, but if we purchase a studio that was doing its own thing with its own technology or using a licensed engine, like they are all they are open to approach us, and we will always have conversations with them about like what is your technical strategy, what is your roadmap like, um, or how do you feel like your needs are currently met by your current technology plan, those types of things. So it's more of like an invitation. Um, we also couldn't afford, like if EA went out tomorrow and bought 10 studios, mm-hmm. um, there's no way we could accommodate 10 teams coming onto Frostbite at the same time. Like this, the team isn't, um, there is a kind of a capacity cost supporting that many teams. Uh, so we would, um, we'd have, we'd have to grow that slowly if that kind of thing happened. We couldn't all roll everyone over at once, even if that was the intent to be there. 
because um, we can't risk our current customers to support like new customers and new customers will require a lot of support because um, Frostbite being an internal engine, we aim to have a good out-of-box experience, but we don't have the same level of documentation and stuff that like, Unity and Unreal enjoy. You can just go on, you can spend hours on YouTube learning about the other engines, right? Like we don't have that many resources. We do have resources, but there's a lot of hands-on support to have a team like uh, move on to Frostbite. Okay. And is Frostbite ever going to be you know, released for anyone to use just the way you can go and use Unity, Unreal, CryEngine, Codecast, these sort of stuff, or licensed? Um, I don't believe so. Um, and if that were the case, I couldn't comment on it anyway. <laughs> I mean, has so. there ever been any like interest or discussion in doing it? Because uh, I can understand when it's only on a couple of games, that but you know when it's this widespread, clearly you know it's doing well and it's got something about it. Uh, I, I would think you know from a big studio, you know, big company, they might think, okay, this could be another you know you know avenue for you know making money or you know increase you know broadening the brand um all the conversations i participated in this have been highly speculative uh but in in terms of the brand like i don't only think a company the size of ea would invest in like externalizing the engine if they thought there was a strong business case to do it like what's the business model is this a compelling source of new revenue for the company and also they would have to strike a balance between can we do that and still support our internal studios or is really the mandate of frostbite would it be watered down by going external um so i think that uh it a, a lot of things would have to line up and there have to be a clear business case to to do it for it to happen also i think the studio we would need to grow the team like to have kind of this external facing support infrastructure that all big middleware providers have. They have a ticket system, they have their own Slack, they have you know, support engineers, those types of things. Like that would all, you couldn't just like plop Frostbite on GitHub and say like, <laughs> send us $100,000 and good luck. It wouldn't work. Like, yeah. People would poke around with it for sure. But um, I think there would have to be I also think there'd probably have to be something unique to the business model that doesn't currently exist with um, like Unreal and Unity. Something more akin to what um, uh, like some of the newer, something newer that Unreal has done with the Fortnite, Unreal for Fortnite. Like I think um, they, uh, that's really cool that it's a different it's a different business it's not the same as just like licensing it to studios it's like more like directly putting it in the hands of players and creators inside of fortnite and fortnite has become its own development platform in a sense um but you know i i can't really discuss this anymore beyond what i've said because it's if we had plans in this way i wouldn't be i wouldn't have wouldn't be at liberty to discuss something that isn't announced okay and you know, Frostboy, what sort of you know language and tech stack do they use? Well, the runtime is C plus um, plus, and it's uh, it's some of the core original Frostbite technologies that have evolved over time. Uh, it is built on some 
older EA technologies uh, like the EASTL, which is in um, is open source. You can get it on GitHub. Uh, it's a software template library. Uh, for many years, especially coming out of like the early console generations, um, the STL, which part of C++ was, had some liabilities for game development that the ESTL was aimed to correct or avoid entirely. There's a white paper that you can uh, read on this by uh, uh, one of the original authors of EASTL. So that's like common to not just Frostbite, but some other EA tech and um, many teams, even teams that don't use um, the Frostbite engine, use some of those lower level libraries. Okay. Uh, and then there's an older animation technology. Um, well, I don't want to say older as in a not like aging, but it, it kind of actually predates the existence of Frostbite called Ant, which is um, which is Frostbite's animation system and it is now merged and is part of Frostbite, but it was its own standalone animation tool. And I think this is one area where Frostbite actually, as a technology suite, um, really excels is uh, this animation um, studio. Uh, it's very powerful. I mean, think about all the needs for animation on the sports title. Just a sports title would have like FC um, and it supports that and a whole bunch of other genres. And it's been in development since I believe the early 2000s. So that's one thing that is um, kind of predates Frostbite as a now kind of part of it. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the game Anthem that you, you know, you worked on previously that came out in 2019 and then the servers were shut down in 2021 and, you know, support for fully was shut down. I'm sorry, it, they're not shut down. They're what, not. There's just oh, no updates. Oh, okay. Okay. So, sorry. So, so there's no updates uh, for Anthem. You know, why like did that happen? Obviously, it wasn't obviously doing the best, but why do you like what 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 happened with that game? Do you think because there was a lot of hype around it? I remember seeing the trailers before it came out, and I thought this looks like a very interesting and exciting game. And then I felt like just before you knew it, there was like okay, sport sport is dropped. Um, so I can't comment on this too much because this is like down to internal business decisions that, uh, both Bioware and the EA made. Um, uh, but what I can say is if Anthem had a million players in 2021, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have a million like monthly active uniques. They would not have discontinued development or, um, but it is, it's actually a frequent thing with live service games uh, for them to come out, have a fairly uh, kind of ahead of steam with the hype. Um, and Anthem certainly had that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to have some struggles after launch. This is, this is kind of a repeated pattern we've seen. And some studios have gone to the extreme of actually turning them off, like they did with the Final Fantasy 14, was it? Um, and then like going dark for like a year and a half and then relaunching others usually just struggle for a while. Um, I think a good one is like no man's sky. Well, I don't think they had a lot of technical struggles. They had more of a engagement struggle, like mm-hmm. keeping players interested, but they kept investing and they, they kept on it. And um, now it's kind of blossomed into what it is today. And there's always the option that then just gets discontinued development. Like, well, 
what do we see of our chances of success of like kind of navigating the the rough spot um, and in reacquiring players and getting new players and balancing that against other investment opportunities. Uh, but suffice it to say, if Anthem had had the success of Apex, it would still be in development for sure. Okay. So you said that the supporters, you know, stopped, but the servers are still up and running, you know, like, like how does that sort of discussion go down? Because sometimes the servers for some games, you know, get shut down. Like what do you talk about? What do you discuss to decide, okay, we'll stop support. We're not going to be actively developing on it anymore. No updates, but we don't want to shut the servers down. And like, at, at what point do you say, you know, this is obviously it's costing money. So it'll be costing resources. Uh, and like, when do we actually shut it down? Well, it's always done on a case-by-case basis. Um, so, like, probably the game that shuts the most servers down is um, FIFA because they have this long tail of all these titles they support, right? Um, but they have to decide, like, uh, how many years past will we support, um, you know, FIFA 2007. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that one isn't supported, but I would have to actually check. Uh, but like some titles stay around just because they have this critical mass of enough players. Like you can play Mass Effect 3 multiplayer still today. Um, mm-hmm. So that is, it's really just done on like, and, and what that critical mass is for each game is, is uh, it's, it's specific to the, the realities of running that game. Like how much engineering support does it require? How much of it is an investment is it? Is it largely automated? A lot of games can be like someone's just like minding the dials and they look for something to turn red and then they only intervene if something breaks. Um, so, but they might not be getting updates, but everything's working smoothly and it has enough players. We'll keep it running. We're never trying to um, disappoint people, but it is kind of like when it's down to like well below that critical mass, people go, okay, we, we've stopped investing in it. This is kind of at its end of life. It what never happens though is it never drains to zero at, of players, and then we turn it off. So there's always some disappointment. There's somebody out there still playing it and enjoying it. Who's there? Always is, <laughs> even yeah. though there's hardly anyone on there. There's always yeah. somebody. Uh, there's always that diehard, you know, that diehard set of you know fans that can, little community. That is playing it like ten years later, and they just want to play that. They don't want to play the new thing. Yeah, um, and this happens. And like, uh, I kind of wish, and I wish this beyond um, EA as well. Is is if there was an engaged community, if you could hand the, the keys to the server to them. There's all sorts of reasons why this isn't practical in many cases. Um, but if it could be community run, that would be cool. If some titles could be turned into community run, that rarely happens. Uh, if it's a title that has kind of a business um, relationship behind it, like uh, like a FIFA game, that wouldn't be possible because the licensing requirements like probably prohibit like a fan run service, um, and that's just a, a contractual obligation that like the the developer and the publisher they couldn't violate that contractual obligation yeah of course not so uh, you know one thing i've always wondered with these sort of online titles that you know 
stop support and then you know eventually stop the servers is why don't they go for because a lot you know they go for a dedicated server approach why don't they go for a dedicated server approach with a peer-to-peer you know fallback so that way you get the benefits of dedicated servers but when you shut them down you could still play uh, you know if you wanted to however you know good it may or may not be using a peer-to-peer system um well, matchmaking is probably the number one reason that it's not possible, even if a title supported that. So um, it's technically possible. One reason I don't think it's done in practice, unless the main game needed peer-to-peer and dedicated servers in some kind of hybrid arrangement, it's a lot of testing and a lot of, you would have to make the game work as well or as close to as well as possible in both setups mm-hmm. and multiplayer games with a single setup are very hard to make and very hard to make work well and have a compelling and consistent user experience without kind of like all the um the things people are used to seeing in multiplayer games like corrections and lagginess and characters popping around and um results that don't match their expectations uh those have different the way you solve those are different for a dedicated server game and a peer-to-peer game. Uh, so you just be increasing your problem set a great deal to try to ship a game like that. Unless that hybrid mode um, was beneficial to the game itself, like the game model, like whatever the simulation the game does really needed it. Um it would be hard to justify that kind of like development cost. What is more, what is easier though is um, letting people host their own servers. Like, and this used to be quite common, like Quake servers and Battlefield nineteen forty two servers and stuff. Like, there were community run servers. So that's much easier to support um, because you're not changing the networking model to. Um, something to two different flavors you're just giving uh empowering people to run the the dedicated servers okay and you know previously you know you mentioned that you worked in the usa you worked in you know sweden as well what was the sort of cultural differences in you know game development like how how did that differ um well, there are some differences to all business um, from America to Sweden. So one big example is like parental leave benefits for uh, people starting families. Uh, being a Nordic country, it seems like the Nordic countries are in a competition for who has the best parental leave benefits. And compared to America, where there is no nationalized standard and they can be quite poor to non-existent, uh, it's amazing. Like, and it is a great place to raise kids. So um, if you're in the EU and you have freedom of movement, you want to have kids move to Denmark, Sweden, or, um, if if your country doesn't have comparable benefits is one suggestion I would make. So that cult, that has a profound impact on business culture because people take on parental leave and they, they go away for months, like six months, they can go away um, or more. 
So the companies have to be able to you know, metabolize that. It's a normal thing. It happens quite frequently. So the way I saw this being handled is people would get covered by contractors. So people earlier in their careers would come in to support that role. Uh, so it's kind of a part of how people get in, get started in their careers is by supporting folks on parental leave. Um, either coming in to just support the team generally and someone more senior takes the reins of someone who's out, or if it's a more direct match of skills, they come in and just directly fulfill that position. I think that's difference. There's some things that aren't different, like you can still work a lot of overtime, um, at least back then. Uh, shipping a game is hard. That wasn't any different. Uh, it is, some things are different strictly because of geography though um and probably aren't noticed by swedes but was noticeable to me when i worked there is the light changes quite a lot um since you're seven degrees off the arctic circle the light goes down at like 3 p.m uh so it looks like darkness outside it will feel like you're working overtime when you're not even you're working a regular eight hour day uh because you go to work in the dark and you get, go home in the dark um but and there's some different like December is kind of like a month long party in Sweden. There's lots of lots of eating of sweets and um, commiserating and um, uh, drinking that, that happens uh, to get through that darkest month. Um, so that that that's noticeable. Fika is a really big thing in Sweden. I'm sure a lot of people outside of Sweden have heard of it. This is the coffee break that happens in the afternoon and it's a verb in swedish and it's like we're gonna go do this thing it's usually like have a snack and have some coffee have a chat um and i think it's a delightful tradition i have this anecdote i like to tell people when we were working um in a group of workstations the power got cut because they're taking too much power all the workstations shut, shut off at the same time. And the team that was sitting in that area just stood up at the same time and said, Fika. And they went to have coffee <laughs> while the IT team tried to get their computers back up. I think the IT team should have said it first, Fika. <laughs> and, the, and then they should have gone. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that. So, you know, because, you know, you jump around, you know, different studios within the area, you have the possibility. It, is that always only a personal choice or can it be, oh, you know, this particular studio, this project needs some engineers, we're ramping up, you know, there's, you know, need some extra help, we're moving you around. And if that is the case of it's not always your decision and they'll, you know, you'll get moved around, how, like how does that make you feel on a personal level when you might be engaged in a particular project, enjoying it, you know, having fun with the team and then suddenly – you're being sent off to a you know a different project. Uh, I'm glad you asked. So this isn't done on a coercive basis. Like we don't co just force people to go work on a game. Um, usually it's done in a way like this studio really needs help. They there's no way they could ramp up this many staff, even if they had the headcount to hire that many staff in that period of time. A good example. Uh, from fairly recently um, was the squadrons game. Uh, a portion of the Anthem team went to work on the squadrons game with motive uh, to help final it in the last six months. And this was, 
basically we were trying to like, we are like, do we need this many people to work on Anthem live? We need this many people to work on help motive. And we need this many, many people to work on dragon age. Like, um, and we just kind of tried to match people where their interests were. And sometimes you can't get it a hundred percent. Some people, we try to re- avoid putting someone in their last choice. Like that, at that time there were three choices and this is just how Bioware handled it. But like we routinely um, have engineers at least uh, float around and sometimes content creators as well that like can, like when they're not particularly busy in their own studios, go to help other studios ship their games. That's one benefit from being on a shared technology is that Frostbite expertise is transferable. So you can go and help another team ship their game. That's pretty common practice. Okay. And, you know, with EA, I'm sure you're aware, you know, EA gets a lot of hate sometimes. Like, what's your opinion on that? Like, and why do you think EA personally gets a lot of hate? I feel like EA and Ubisoft are probably the, the two biggest hated, you know, companies within the gaming industry. You know, correct me if you, you know, think otherwise. Um, well, there certainly is lots of um, colorful feedback. Uh, <laughs> I do think that there is a, a strong temptation to suspect nefarious goals or intentions when the publisher and the studios really just aren't perfect. Like they are really trying. Um, I think it would surprise people to understand the amount of uh, leeway studios have inside of EA to um, hang themselves on their own (laughs) shoelaces, essentially like EA uh, used to like long before my time at EA would like acquire a studio, turn it into EA something name and run it for a few years and close it. That was seemed to be the pattern. That's certainly not the case anymore. Um, But like, if a, if a game doesn't come out to someone's expectations or gets delayed or canceled, there is often a, it's just because EA is greedy. That's a common one. It's like, well, it's a public company. They are actually compelled to grow the business. That's their mandate. Um, it is a for-profit business. It's not a non-profit. Uh, not a lot of giant AAA games being made on a non-profit basis by anyone. Uh, and I, I also think that there's a fair, it's fair to criticize game publishers for decisions you don't agree with. What I don't like is when people are making claims for which they don't have any evidence. And um, I see this a lot. You'll see this like on comments on like Kotaku articles or whatever. People are saying, well, EA only did this because of blah. It's like, you don't know that. Like, I work here and I couldn't even say that. <laughs> or sometimes I do know that that is definitely false. And it's like, but that's internal. I can't comment on it. Like, so you're just like, people are just on there, on the forums saying stuff, but they don't have any evidence. In general, I think everyone on the internet who makes claims without evidence should be challenged. The internet would be a healthier place if everyone was going like, well, how do you know that? Do you have any evidence that supports this claim? So many things are said uh, inside of video games, outside of video games in politics, whatever, where people are just like, well, that's because of this. It's like, really? Can you demonstrate that with a primary source? Like, how do you know? Are you a journalist? Did you do the digging? 
do you have a moral inside the corporation? Um, so like, I think it's fair like to criticize missteps and it's also fair to be disappointed when they mess something up that you cared about. Game players are passionate. I'm a passionate game player myself. No one's out here working every day trying to have one over on you other than we're trying to sell you a game, we're trying to make a game. We hope you will like it's an imperfect process. The results are mixed all of the time. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's really also be charitable. Like a lot of people work really hard to try to do this and we are our own worst critics. We know why things didn't work out. Um, and we're pr- pretty harsh on ourselves and it's really hard. The one thing I have absolutely zero tolerance for though, is the lazy developer meme. Like if you could do it better, if you're not lazy, then by all means go make your game. There's nothing stopping you. You can go down to the download unity tomorrow and you can make your GTA clone that is better than the, the lazy thousand person team. Um, you know, by all means, you do that. You go and get the VC money. Just mm-hmm. say it's Web3 and has NFTs. I'll shower you with money. Like, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> like, um, people literally die making games. Literally die. I've seen it happen. People burn themselves out. They injure themselves. Marriages are ruined. That's the thing that drives me the most up the wall is the lazy developer mean and actually i think it's it's meant to i think it's not because they understand us as being lazy they're just being jerks yeah they're just trolling i mean uh, probably most of the people that put those memes out on developers themselves you know have no desire to be developers so you know they don't understand the work that goes into even something simple you would be surprised the amount of time someone spends on making flowers look good in a triple A game. It's it's absurd. The it amount is. of time we spent on the cape in Anthem for the one character that had a cape, it it was dramatic. Like, oh the cape gotta work this way underwater and it's gotta work this way while you're flying. What if you teleport and oh now you're in a cinematic? What does the cape do? It's it's surprising. And it's also like when you work really closely on something and try to make perfect it, and then you see a game that kind of phones it in, um, and you're, it is like nails on chalkboard when you see it. And yeah, I know, I'm not then going; those people are lazy. And I'm like, they probably should have. We probably should have done what they did and ignored that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, like I was saying, EA gets you know a lot of hate. As somebody that works for EA, have you ever experienced negativity from friends, family, you know, people that know that you work for EA and they're all passionate about games themselves, especially, you know, if there's some particular title that you worked on that didn't do so well or you got cancelled, for example? Uh, no, actually, my interactions with uh, people out in the world have, have all been positive. Um, even with Anthem, which really struggled after launch uh, with a lot of uh, post-launch problems, I, I was at lunch in Austin and a gentleman came up to me and was just like, I don't know how you did it. This is my favorite game ever. And like, it was really well-timed because I, I was, I needed to hear that at that time. <laughs> it was when you struggle, uh, when a game struggles and you work on it really hard, like it's hard and you're, you're just trying to make it successful. 
getting that kind of feedback timely like that was really rewarding. I get all sorts of um, positive interactions. I was going through customs from Canada to the U.S. Uh, on a business trip, um, returning to the U.S., and someone was asking me, when are they going to do NCAA football again? And I'm like, oh, we'd really like to. There's the, the legal dispute is what's preventing that from happening. Um, so, How did like, that person know that you worked at EA? Well, I, I said, like, oh, I'm returning from a business trip. And he's like, oh, oh. what do you do? Um, like, I don't get this going into Canada. They're much more businesslike. But coming back into the U.S., they're more like, welcome home. What's up? Yeah. Uh, so, and he was like, oh, really? Um, what do you do? I'm, like, oh, I'm a video game developer. He's like, where do you work? In electronic arts. He's like, really? NCAA is amazing. When are you guys going to make that game again? And I was like, oh, I wish I could tell you. But that legal troubles is what's preventing it. <laughs> Okay, so between you know two thousand seven and two thousand and nine, you was an instructor and you was teaching introduction to you know video game programming. How you know what got you into doing that, and how did that influence your you know your video game career post? Um, so a friend of mine was working there at the Austin Community College. Uh, teaching that course and he was like looking to wrap up that engagement and i was like oh i'd like to try that so um that's how i got introduced to it they had a kind of a very new game development program at the austin community college at the time so i had to apply to be what they called an adjunct professor um but given that it was is kind of a at the time it was i believe a non-credited um it's just a skills program uh that were, they weren't as strict with hiring it was really like oh you've been a game developer for this long you know what you're talking about sure you can do it um uh so i i i re i recast his source materials because he wrote a game in java that the case the game was built around and i I used uh, C Sharp and Microsoft's XNA, which still existed at the time, it was very new. But it, I was attracted to XNA because you could use C Sharp, which I thought was a decent learning environment. And uh, you could also run your games on a console. You could run it on the Xbox 360. So, uh, yeah, I, I taught that uh, course, I think, seven times. Um, and Boy, I learned a lot about uh, how hard it is to teach. Um, so I have a tremendous respect for people that are professional teachers. Um, it really educated me on like what it is like to know thing versus something to explain it. Like so much of like when I talk to someone at work and they ask me a question, and I'm trying to help them do something. They have so much shared knowledge already. But when you have a student who has like no programming experience at all, and you're trying to help them make their first game in a language like C-sharp, uh, I really got um, uh, kind of taken aback, and I almost even quit. Like I was like, oh, maybe I will just not do this another semester. But I decided to stick with it. I said, okay, well, I need, I need to update my course materials. For the first three semesters, I spent a lot of time um, updating my course materials to kind of accommodate like a wide range of potential students because I could, I have, I had students who were professional programmers. I had students who were 
already pursuing CS degrees, but at an institution that didn't have a game development um, course. And I had students that were more interested in game design, but at the time the program required everyone to take the intro to each discipline. So everyone had to take intro to art, intro to design, and intro to programming. Uh, There was no production track at that time. Uh, So it really, I think it made me better at explaining technical things to a broad audience. And uh, I still use that today. Um, I learned a lot doing it. It's really hard work, especially when you already have a full-time job. (laughs) Creating the course materials on that first semester was a huge lift. I I totally got myself into the deep end. I had had no idea how hard it was going to be. Have you ever thought about, you know, doing some more teaching? Especially with all the knowledge you've got now? Uh, Not not in addition to my day job. Okay. Is it something that you could see yourself, let's say, when you retire, doing some part-time teaching? Because obviously by then you'll have even more knowledge, having worked on these, you know, at these big studios, on these big titles, you know, Frostbite, all that sort of stuff. Do you ever see yourself doing it after you've retired or maybe semi-retired? Um, I would rather do mentoring or consult with in- independent studios that are largely inexperienced. Um, I think I, I could have a lot to offer an indie studio that is pursuing their first game or their second game. And um, they, they, they kind of have a notion of what went wrong on their first game, but they're not sure how to course correct for the next game. I think I could have a pretty big impact there. I don't think I want to teach in uh, in like kind of a classroom with 20 students uh, ever again. I, that could change, but I don't, I don't see myself wanting to do that. Um, there's also like, when I'm done doing game development, I don't know what the technology landscape is going to be like then. So I'm not sure uh, I'll have something to teach, if that makes sense. Okay. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, more advisory style of role that you were talking about. I mean, have you ever thought about, if not now, later on, you know, going and working for a startup, you know, as an advisor, consultant, non non executive director of sorts. You know, maybe there's a you know video game startup that's struggling a bit, and you feel like you might be able to just you know steer them in the right direction after seeing all of the things that have gone on in the industry. Maybe as long as I got to work normal hours. Startups to me smack of like unrestricted amounts of overtime so (laughs) if i could just mary poppins in there and just be like boop we'll make this better and make this better and make this better and then mary poppins out then (laughs) then i would do it okay and you know you mentioned some of the titles that you've worked on i think you said you've worked on 16 titles in total like what are the what other ones have you worked on you said old republic you said anthem and what the ones have you worked on? Any what capacity? Uh, oh, well, all, all titles. Um, I've worked in a technical aspect. Uh, so, like the first title I worked on was the Nintendo sixty four port of Tony Hawk Pro Skater. That was a really lucky gig to get because it was a great game, and it had uh, it was very successful. 
I got royalties for it. It was um, a great learning experience. You learn a lot about programming by porting games between platforms that have some pretty major differences. And back then, the the consoles were quite different. Um, so that was a PlayStation 1 to N64 port. I worked on a bunch of N64 titles, five in total, uh, including Spider-Man, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, Tony Hawk's Pro, Sk- Pro Skater 3. Um, but I was more of a... I, I didn't work full-time on Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3. And then I worked on a, uh, several PS2 titles. The one I'm most proud of is Pitfall to Lost Expedition, uh, which was PS2, Xbox, and GameCube. Um, and that was a, a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Um, worked more overtime than I should have. And uh, But I still I still like that game. I think we made a good game. Didn't really find commercial success. But... Uh, in, in terms of positive interactions, um, one of our game designers ran into someone from Naughty Dog, and like they were actually showering praise on that game. So it's like, oh, if someone from Naughty Dog liked it, that's pretty good. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, the studio also worked on a port of this, the original Sims to the PlayStation 2 um, and Xbox and GameCube. That was a massive lift in terms of a technology port. Uh, Consoles at that time were extremely memory limited. Uh, PlayStation 2 had 32 megabytes of main RAM. At the start screen, The Sims consumed 256 megabytes of RAM. Uh, so that was before you even got into the game. Uh, so it was a, and we had to turn it into a 3D game. So that was um, that was an interesting experience. Uh, I only worked on that game for a few months, um, but. Uh, it was very successful. They, it was definitely the right call to port that game to the PlayStation 2 because there was an audience there. Like We were skeptical, like, will people who own consoles even want to play The Sims? We didn't know. Um, but yeah, learned a lot from that. Those are some of the standouts. I worked on Battlefield 4 when I worked at Frostbite for a period of time. All Frostbite development was stopped to ship Battlefield 4. Um, that's certainly the most successful EA game I've worked on. Um, uh, even though it kind of had a rocky launch, it still sold really well. People still play it today. So I'm pretty proud of that one. The Old Republic is the one and only MMO and Star Wars game I've worked on. Uh, I do feel like every game developer will have to make a Star Wars game at some point. Um, <laughs> it does seem to be like a contract with the gods. Uh, it was a massive game at launch. Like, uh, probably in terms of like the just the geographic area of all the levels combined, it's just this truly massive experience. Um, I got to really index into a lot of the skills I had for an optimization to work on that game. That's what I primarily worked on. I did work on a few gameplay features, optimizations um, uh, was my focus, uh, and getting um, authoritative collision detection working on the servers. Uh, but I learned a lot, even though I'm not an audience, I'm not in the MMO audience. Um, I really liked the old Knights of the Old Republic. So I was like, okay, that's enough to make me care enough about this game. And I get to learn about MMOs. So, um, proud of that one. I know it wasn't a wild killer. Turns out there were no wild killers. Um, except unless you count Fortnite, I don't know. Um, but it found its own success and it, 
it did some neat stuff. So I think that's cool. And I don't want to talk about all 16, but those are some of the highlights. Okay. I mean, yeah, the old Republic, uh, it's one of those games every probably two, three years I'll go back and, you know, have a little play with. It's it's something I do enjoy playing. It, uh, there's, there's just so many other games I have. You know, <laughs> you know, my backlog now that I'm older, an adult, you know, have a business, family, you know, other, you know, commitments. There's just not as much time, you know, to get through the games, as, you know, as they used to be when I was a kid. So, yeah, I, I, Old Republic is definitely one of those ones I want to, you know, get back to. And I do like that it is free now because I, I, I had it when you had to, you know, buy it. I remember buying the special edition, which you, you got the Darth Malgus statue as well, that, that really nice huge statue. Yeah, he's I, sitting on the shelf behind me. Oh, is he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a good special edition. I'm trying to think. Do you remember how much that cost back then? Uh, in the US, it was like 120 bucks, I think. It was... Yeah, I mean, here it probably would have been about 80 quid. Because obviously now $120 will be about 120 quid in reality. But back then, it was probably about 80 quid. And that was a good special edition for the money. But you see nowadays what you get for special editions. And it's just so... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, here's another question for you. What do you think of special editions nowadays where there's just so many of them and it's just digital content? Like you'll get a game for, let's say, $80 and then $120, $130, you'll get some special edition. But for the most part, it's just X, some digital unlocks and there's nothing physical anymore. Not all the games, but a lot of games. Um, I kind of am on both sides. Like, like I'm in game development because of Ultima and those used to come with a cloth map and some other kind of physical item in the mm-hmm. box. Uh, we're well past the cloth map days. Um, and that was standard editions. You got yes. that and the, the ant manual with the beautiful hand-drawn art and all that stuff. Do you remember the just... big maps that you used to get with GTA? You would unfold it out. Yeah, it was almost by necessity that those things mm-hmm. were, were in the box. Um, so in general, I think we should probably be making fewer disposable plastic things in factories to put in game boxes and special editions. Um, I think if a special edition is going to have something nice that's physical, it should be something that will last. Like the special edition for Mass Effect Andromeda has a, a metal um nomad in it like this is a durable uh model that could last well my mine will probably outlast me um so that's one thing uh but if it's just like just a bunch of chotskis then i'm like no i'd prefer the digital content especially if the digital content is really relevant to my experience with the game um but it's less compelling where the legendary edition is just digital content that other people could just spend as a microtransaction on mm-hmm. like it's not unique. Um, then I think the value proposition is less compelling. And I think everyone should just pick like, what is the value proposition? If, if you get the game earlier or some other thing. Um, uh, yeah. I think that that's, it, it's a mixed bag. And I, I think sometimes like games, it's like their, their, their special editions might reflect the lack of planning. Cause if you're going to make something physical, you have to get on that like planning like a year or more in advance. Okay. That's a fair bit of time to be for you. Cause I do, you know, miss the days where there were a lot of games 
that it was almost like every major game would get, you know, obviously the regular edition, then there'll be like a steel box edition, which wasn't too much more usually. Like if the game was 40 quid, the steel box might be like 45 in most, you know, retailers or Amazon or, you know, some of the cheaper places. Um, but now if the steel regular is, I don't know, 60, then the steel box is probably easily 80. And I feel like it's not as good quality as it used to be. But then you would back in the day get like that more limited, you know, edition. I remember the Call of Duty limited editions where you had the RC car for one of them. And I think you had like the fake C, I think it was with the RC car, like the fake C4 as well. Uh, and I think you had Night Vision goggles with another one. Uh, but those were definitely some nice, you know, premium, you know, special edition. I, what I always found funny was I would get like, if I got a special edition and like, let's say for 200 quid, you would look a few months later, there'll be a, you know, bargain bottom prices for like $60 or, you know, 60 quid. Cause the, the ones they didn't, if they didn't sell them more, they had to get rid. And so sometimes people got some real good bargains if they waited a few months. Yeah, well, that's a that's like true of games in general. Like, yeah, if, if you can't stomach the the eighty dollar launch price, just wait a few months. Especially if you have a back a queue of games you're working on, like I you mean, don't need to rush out and play it immediately. Yeah, that is one benefit of getting older and having less time for games. Is that you actually end up saving? Obviously, you save money. You're not buying as many games, but ignoring the aspect they get cheaper, you know, like you said, like bar Call of Duty and some other ones, which maintain a high price point for a, you know, a good amount of their life, you know, you know, cycle. Most games come down a fair bit within a few months, a year plus they're hitting rock bottom prices. And what's great is when you've got services like Xbox game pass, you know, you got EA's own service, Ubisoft, you know, PlayStation, Sometimes, if you if you you know don't get round to a game, maybe it's not your top priority. It ends up coming on some of these services, and you're like, "Ooh, that's a nice little surprise! I get it for free, but I wanted it." You know. Anyway, plus you get the other benefit of if it's broken at launch, which there's so many games that are, there's a better chance that you'll be more playable by the time you actually get round to you know playing it, which is also another big advantage. Yeah, no, wait for all the, the patches. <laughs> oh, yeah, for, for sure. So, I mean, what's your opinion on mobile gaming and, you know, these sort of, like, pay-to-win games with so many in-app purchases? I know it gets a lot of hate and a lot of negativity. Uh, you know, it, it, this isn't directly just about EA, but just the industry as a whole, you know, where it's gone over the last decade or so. Uh, well, I would say that, the mobile landscape for developers is really harsh. Like it's um, brutally competitive. There is this traditional gamers, I believe are the ones complaining about the mobile model, which is either pay to win or just frankly pay to play very much at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But the economics of selling games at two to $3 is terrible for compared to the development investment. I mean, so, it was great when the App Store first came out because they were pretty much all paid unless you had a light version. And because there weren't many games out there, 
if he was half decent, you could start making a bit of money. But that didn't last for long. Yeah, no, the, I definitely all the first movers who got games out quickly and yeah. like very simple games making several hundred thousand dollars for the people who threw them on there early. Like, great. Like I hope they bought a house and that they have a lasting effect on their life. But doing that now is nearly impossible. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it's, and in everything is by the same big players. You, you look at the top charts, you've got some of the more classic studios like EA, but then you've got the, I mean, they're not classic studios like EA, but they're basically the big studios within the mobile space. Now, that came around, let's say, 10 years ago, you know, stuck it out, but they're just the ones that keep releasing games, and it's really hard for you to get into that top 10, top 100, you know, you know list. Yeah, it's um, it's brutal. I, uh, I don't play a lot of mobile games. The ones I play are more like... Um, uh, they resemble more traditional games like uh, Monument Valley and Sword and Sorcery were some of my favorites. Um, it, I, I don't enjoy the interface, the touchscreen interface for playing a lot of games, like, especially if they're trying to like turn a 3D game into like a controller where you kind of have a virtual controller on the screen. Um, I think that's very crude, um, especially if there's like this is just a sized down version of a game that you can play elsewhere with proper controls. I'd never play a game like that. Um, but I understand like people are kind of chasing a business model that works. Um, again, this isn't a charity. They are, they're trying to make money. Um, and like, I think they're, some of them are like anti-consumer. Some are, um, it, I guess I should pivot. Consumers bear some responsibility here. People are making the games that they can make because this is what will sustain them and like make it worth investing in games. And consumers are putting their their do- they're voting with their dollars. So if you see a vocal people on a forum on Reddit decrying like Clash of Clans or whatever for whatever these pay to win mechanics are, the overwhelming majority of people are not commenting on it. And they're spending money, and they keep doing it because those people exist. If unless that changes, the model on mobile will not change. Um, it'll be either subscription based or freemium. Oh yeah, I mean that model freemium. I think there's definitely some merit to it because you you get some titles on there that you know become free, you know are free. They don't go crazy on the in-app purchases or the, you know the ads, and you get to discover games that you may not have discovered otherwise. But also vice versa, if you play a game, it's not the best. You you don't feel the urge to keep playing it. Whereas if you bought it for sixty eighty dollars, sometimes I know I've done it myself when I bought a game. Especially when I'm, you know, when I was a bit younger, where you know that sixty, eighty dollars, or you know, forty, sixty quid meant a lot more. I would complete games that I, you know, probably wouldn't want to if they were just given to me for free. So there's definitely some merit in the model. It's just there's obviously a lot of games where they've taken it to the extreme. But I do like your point of it's working because people are, you know, buying the in-app purchases you know, are constantly, you know, playing these games. 
Yeah, I do think we have an obligation as developers to make it clear when people are spending money and the amount that they're spending. Um, there have been a number of cases, which really, in some cases, are just certain types of fraud where uh, minors, for example, can spend money that uh, as they're just spending their parents' money effectively and mm -hmm. rack up these huge bills of like $300. I know. I don't know the details of what happened, but Fortnite got fined a very large amount of money in the United States for some uh, purchasing mechanics, something close to $300 million. I mean, it was a steep fine. Um, so I think we do have an obligation to be like, it's clear that like you're either you're converting real currency to a virtual currency. Uh, this is a one-way trip. You can't get this money back. Uh, parents need to have control over that for kids that are minors. Um, like we do have to be responsible merchants in that sense. Um, like we have so less, so much less exposure than like a retailer does to like returns and like uh, in enraged Complaints customers. Well yeah. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. So like I do, we have to do, be responsible be upfront as possible about it. Um, I think also the platform holders like Apple and Android um, need to be responsible as well. And uh, I think they should include clawback mechanisms for like, cause it's hard to police for them because there's so many apps in the app stores mm -hmm. that they, if some, something fraudulent gets through that they have a mechanism contractually and technologically to claw back funds from a developer who's, who's basically run a scam. Yeah, I mean, I find the usually the big problems lay, you know, these sort of things where, you know, a kid spends $300 on their parents' credit card, for example, is usually with the, you know, select few big titles. So they don't even really need a system to, you know, police or analyze the smaller titles so much just because they're one, not don't have the same sort of reach and probably not as addictive, you know, to be fair either. So it really is you know, the Fortnites of the world, the Clash of Clans, the Candy Crushes, and they know, you know, those titles. Like, if you just, if they just did it on the top 100, you know, top grossing freemium titles, that's really, that would, you know, go a long way. But then there is an incentive for, let's say, Apple to look away and, you know, you know, act dumb, you know, uh, as it were, because they get a cut of the, you know, money. Uh, obviously, you know, the, ignoring Fortnite, you know, we've had, you know, they've had those issues. But it, in generally speaking, obviously, they're getting a cut of the revenue, and unless they're really forced to, they they would obviously rather have that money. Um. Well, certainly. Uh. But they also don't like to be sued. No. <laughs> Companies like that the least. And they like they don't like to be in the crosshair of governments. Yeah, um, I feel like it's the crosshair more than the suing thing. Because, uh, you know, you see some of these big, big companies that get sued. It sounds like a lot of money for the average person. But when you look at how much money they make between one, you know, lawsuit that's successful and the next lawsuit, you're like, I, it's really just them paying a, you know, a fine. It's yeah. not that much, but then it, it, like it is the crosshair, you know, publicly speaking and then governmentally, because it can really one hurt the brand and two, you know, like if the government really decides to, you know, go after them to make an example, for example, they, 
they could really make it difficult, you know, for a particular company. So yeah, they definitely want to stay out to the crosshair. So there's that incentive to do enough that the government and you know public opinion will ignore them. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I do think on the technological side, if they solve it for everyone, if they have a mechanism to take thirty percent of purchases then they have a mechanism to claw that back. It's just a matter of um, intention, in, intentionality and um, wherewithal. Uh, but yeah, like long story short though, mobile is a difficult uh, environment to uh, be successful in. Um, the, the, the wild west days are gone. It's really hard without an IP or uh, marketing that is beyond the, cost of development to, to even get noticed. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you know, we're discussing, you know, this sort of stuff in our purchases, the freemium model. One sort of idea I've just thought of is have some sort of verification process to, I mean, obviously you need like a debit card, but some sort of verification process to prove that you're, you know, an adult, for example, and if let's say you are giving your i think there is something like this but like if you're giving your device or a device to a child mark it as they said child device and you on your phone for example will get your pop-up like the in-app purchase cannot take place without it you notify you know you doing some sort of verification on your phone whether that's your fingerprint you know face id some sort of two-factor authentication so like they if your kid has a tablet like it's just not you know feasible for the i mean you know physically they're not physically capable of making that purchase if that device is marked as a child device like you need to authenticate that until they're an adult um those mechanisms do exist like at least on ios like our kids if they want to make a purchase we have to approve it on our own devices Mm -hmm. um uh but those are mechanisms that haven't always existed and i'm sure there are uh there's an incentive to try to get around those for developers um who are uh less ethical uh so it's it's kind of kind of keeping up it's a bit of a rat race there um but it's also as a parent, if you you need to have kind of a very engaged relationship with your your kid's relationship to technology. Like that's kind of part of it. It can't just be like, you know, Bobby's on his phone. Um, good luck. Like, there's so many examples and so many ways like kids can get into trouble with technology that like you just need to have a in the same way that like driving a car has its risks when kids first start driving like they they need to it needs to be a managed relationship between the parent and the device and the software and unfortunately like i many people are luddites and that's not a criticism it's just like they're not technological at least i know most of the this revenue generating strategies that my kids will encounter if they play mobile games as a game developer i know those and i'm i'm fairly informed but as a, an average parent, you might be completely ignorant. Like I just use my phone for taking down grocery lists and looking at the web sometime and news. And otherwise I am a not technological person. Those are people who get caught by surprise at the kind of the stuff that is available and what, what children could get into. Um, oh, yeah. this, even, this goes way outside of games too, into social media and all of that stuff. 
Yeah, I think, you know, as a society, you know, parents in general do have a responsibility of educating themselves. I know they, parents do have a tendency to put the blame on others. Like, you know, I don't know about technology. You know, it's Apple's fault or it's school's fault or, you know, it's the games, you know, it's the game developer's fault. But the reality is it's either you fully ban your kids, then there's obviously that's a separate discussion. But if you're not banning your kids from interacting in these medium, you know, games, social media, phones, for example, you, you really should, you know, read upon it, keep up to date obviously you don't need to know the ins and outs of how to use tiktok effectively to promote you know you know promote a brand but you know understand that it exists what it is and the sort of content that's on there and i don't think that takes too much time if you actively do it but i feel like people can get lazy and they just don't want the effort uh well as a parent of twins, I don't think anything's done out of laziness. It's more of desperation and, and available time. Like you have to make time for these things. And um, our society, especially in America where we don't make time for parents, you're just part of the capitalist hustle. <laughs> like it's, it's very difficult. There's all these demands. Like people are looking for anything to be easy. And, um, there are other people who are looking to exploit the attention of children. So uh, I think we have a collective responsibility to treat kids and parents fairly, um, even if there's money to be made. Uh, and it's, I'm sure there's lots of ways to fail as a parent. There's numerous ways. And like digital babysitting is definitely a thing people rely on because true babysitting is expensive. Uh, so they're, they're paying one way or they're paying the other. Who's getting the money, Fortnite or the babysitter? Um, it, these are there's. I don't think there's a lot of easy answers. Uh, so I don't want to be prescriptive. Like what I said about parent parenting and parents before I became a parent. I apologize for all of that. <laughs> I was I was I was not informed. Um, I do try. We try to make good choices. Uh, we try to navigate difficulties as they come up. Um, and yeah, I think that the governments need to make an environment that, um, permits parents to have time to focus on these things. Like childcare should be less expensive, all those things out there. They all, there's an interaction between all of this stuff. Um, and parental available parent time is definitely something that can be easily exploited by, um, any number of, uh, business practices, whether intentional or not, I think trying to monetize children is itself ethically fraught because they don't have their own money. And even if they did, they're not equipped to make informed decisions um, to the same degree that adults are. And some would argue maybe adults aren't in many cases equipped to make informed decisions, especially yeah. when it relates to technology. So uh, um, yeah, it's fraught. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult subject. Like, um, I, I just think that we should have the tools, um, and there should be rules of the road and everybody should agree to play by the same rules. Um, and like, I'm so not so much motivated by making money that I'm like, I need to take money from seven year olds or their parents. Um, mm. 
in a nefarious way where it's not explicitly like you are making a purchase for this thing. The value proposition of this thing we think is X. You please determine if that's a valuable thing to do. So in terms of like, you know, we've discussed the games that you've worked on, like what game would you, you know, wish you could have worked on? Like I'm sure there's some game either within EA or outside of EA that even if it was maybe even before your, you know, your gaming career that you think, you know, I would have loved to work on that. And in what capacity? Um, well, as it comes to EA games, I think, um, even today it would be cool to work on apex. Um, have you tried moving over? Cause obviously it's an active game. Um, no comment. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a cool game. I think that their their success story is compelling because they just shadow dropped this game a week later. It was available, and they had a huge success with it. Um, I think that they have a really interesting approach to the way they do design. Uh, and so I think that's pretty cool. What I would like to work on isn't more of a specific game, but more of a genre. But unfortunately, this genre is almost entirely done in the indie world now. So um uh meaning the pay isn't very good <laughs> so uh the adventure games i love adventure games i grew up playing adventure games um there's very few if any triple a adventure games uh, i think what i would classify as an adventure game the last one that's a triple a game was probably the last guardian um that was a good game <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful game um but yeah, like there, there's so many adventure games I played coming up that uh, had a huge influence. Um, I've worked on a lot of other genres, and I feel I feel lucky to have worked on as many genres and games that I have. A lot of people could work on a game five years to have it canceled. That would be brutal. Like, and that's like their whole career up to that point. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, I think working on an adventure game would be cool. Um, but it's not a it's not a genre that it really attracts a lot of it. it it's hard to justify a triple a investment profile uh, for an adventure game um, that isn't have some other type of hook in it, whether that's something to do with uh, microtransactions after launch or a live service, or like, I just want a pure old school single player adventure game. That would be, that'd be fun to work on. Yeah. I mean, you know, not working on it, you know, per se. I do, I know we do get a fair bit of, a fair few single-player games these days, but, like, compared to what it used to be, I do miss the days where there were so many single-player titles. You'll get those titles that were probably a seven, a solid 7 or 8 out of 10. They were never, like, a 10 out of 10, but they were just, you never expected it, you know, expected it to come out. It wasn't from a pre-existing franchise. You know, it wasn't, it was a bit different. And you just thought, oh, this is a nice game. You know, this is fun. It's a little different. Uh, and, you know, I do miss those days. I feel like there's, obviously, there's a lot of push for multiplayer gaming. You know, you know, studios make a lot of money, you know, from that. And obviously, you know, gamers are, you know, you know, really wanting multiplayer titles so when you do get a single player game and it's good you know like an uncharted for example or a god of war i really do you know you know get excited i mean how do you feel about that 
well, those are the games I want to play. Um, I don't have enough time for multiplayer games, like, like to have an enjoyable experience, especially if there's a PvP element. So I need to play games I can pick up and sit down, and uh, I I like those those type of games. The thing is, and as we've learned with the recent it's like Sony leak, um, now we you have a dollar amount to associate with something like Horizon. $200 million. That's a lot of units that needs to sell to break even um, and even more to be profitable. Sony has the benefit of, you know, using their premium single player titles as kind of a way to sell the platform because they make money on every game that comes out on the PlayStation. Uh, it's harder for a independent publisher that doesn't have those hardware stakes involved to uh, realize that return. Um, and again, it's people voting with their dollars. Like people vote for multiplayer repeatedly over and over again. And I, I see the same forums where people are like, why don't you make single player games or more single player games? I'm like, why don't you buy them? Is <laughs> my response is like, uh -huh. We, here's what, and I'm just trying, trying to say this clearly, like to justify the expense of $200 million, we're talking about 15 million to 20 million units sell at the kind of higher price point of $60 US, $70 US. Now we're kind of in the Gen 5 pricing categories or Gen 11. I don't know. I'm not trying to irritate Nintendo fans. Um, uh, unless, like, I guess the one of the only companies that kind of can enjoy that level of success and more is Nintendo. They they make AAA money without AAA price points on development. Mm -hmm. um, and I have nothing but respect for how idiosyncratic and great Nintendo is at what they do. Um, but like, yeah, just looking at the top five um, Switch games in the top five. The last time I looked, Animal Crossing, forty five million units. It's a AAA casual game. Although yeah. it's actually kind of hardcore if you've ever played Animal Crossing. It's quite demanding. Um, it, it's definitely something that if it was on mobile, let's say on an iPad, it would fit right in. Maybe it, maybe slightly top, you know, cut down, but you, you, you wouldn't feel out of place the way, you, you know, when they pour GTA or like the Knights of the Old Republic. Even though they say, you know, even though they sell well for like, you know, a fixed amount, they, they still feel out of place, you know, compared to a Candy Crush on mobile. Yeah, um, and I think you should play to a platform's strengths. Um, but that's an example of outside of the idiosyncrasies of Nintendo's success to be able like they're the most successful single player game maker in the world by far. Like, there's no comparison. We don't even know if God of War Ragnarok is profitable in a strictly on its own dollars and cents um, way. Uh, I, I I suspect that it probably is, but not in a way that would make EA go, well, we should make a God of War. Because yeah. we're talking about, like, if it costs $200 million to make, that game needs to make over a billion dollars to justify the investment. That's, what mm. that's the kind of go big or go home attitude big publishers have about that kind of investment. It's like, it needs to really crush it. And... There are examples of like making AAA games that seem to have like this groundswell of support in the in the um, in the general public that don't sell well. Uh, 
EA example, Mirror's Edge Catalyst. There was a vocal, turns out, small group of people on the internet that wanted another Mirror's Edge game. I love Mirror's Edge. I love the first one. I loved Catalyst. Um, but do you I, think that was like Mirror's Edge Catalyst came out a fair few years after the first one? Do you think there was the time, you know, gap as well? How many years? you know, between the two games. I remember I, I played one, I played two. I enjoyed the second one, but I just felt like number one was so out there and then so many other games, you know, you know, came and went, you know, so many other genres. And he was like, okay, if, if this was, you know, two years after the first one, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, would it, would it have built an audience or would it just the same number of people bought it? Um, Cause I don't think the same number of people buying it would have been sufficient. Like it would have to grow like, like take Assassin's Creed as an example of something that is largely single player and built its audience. Like a first release wasn't a critical darling sold decently, but they didn't like bulk and didn't say like, okay, well that was weird. We're not going to do that again. They're just like, nope, we're going to make another Assassin's Creed game. Making new IPs is hard. We'll consider that a sunk cost. And to their credit, they did that. And Assassin's Creed is a hugely successful franchise now. Yeah. Um, but is I don't know what its success in terms in dollars and cents compared to like a Call of Duty though, like this monster that sells three thirty million units a year. Um, yeah, that makes like hundreds. I, I mean, like. Uh, I think they sometimes they they close a billion dollars of sales like in a weekend or in a week or something like that. Like it is pretty ridiculous, you know, the numbers they deal with, you know, when they launch. Yeah, and um, but at the cost of not making some like cool single player games, right? <laughs> but like they're making money, like and people are buying them, <laughs> so. Like Call of Duty will continue to come out every year until people drift to some other um, titles, like until they 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 stop being successful. So, like it's um, it's partially comes out of my own personal frustration with um, wishing uh, games the games audience spent their I guess spread the money around more. Um, I don't know if that's very eloquent, but it seems like we we're gonna get you get these top ten kind of monster titles that'll get like either as a live service last forever or uh, be continually invested in like Call of Duty, um, because that's where most of the money that's being spent gravitates towards, uh, and it it just like I'm I'm glad indie titles exist. I don't know how, because um, the, they're they're shot in the arm for just new ideas, and uh, I imagine it's very hard to make your money back and get noticed uh, in, in indie development. So I have nothing but um, respect and praise for people who are putting themselves out there trying to do something that is underrepresented or different. Oh yeah, for sure. So you know. You're a, you know, you're a technical guy, you know, you've been a programmer, you're, you know, you're head of teams now. 
do you do any personal programming projects and, and you know beyond the technical side what are you know your hobbies and interests uh no i don't do any personal programming um and haven't done so mostly since i became a parent <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh also like i feel like i even when i was actively programming i benefited from away from keyboard time um more uh and i felt largely felt like i was engaged with what i was doing in the in my day to day so i didn't feel like i'm like i'm not getting to scratch this itch technically although i would do stuff to learn things like um whenever someone drops a new language i want to go play around with it uh but my hobby, most of my hobbies are non technical i mean i still like to play video games but uh i don't spend a lot of time doing that um i really try to do active things like now that i live in the pacific northwest i've taken up snowboarding again so i look forward to doing that in the winter although here in oregon you can snowboard at mount hood year-round um and uh just recently bought an e-bike so i'm kind of putting some miles on that um and yeah i really like to, to try to stay active and, uh slow down the process of aging safely because you blow out your knee, then that'll make you inactive for at least a year and a half. <laughs> so, you know, be careful, kids. It's easy to um, bench yourself. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, what advice would you give to somebody that's looking to build a career in the games industry, especially, you know, like you have in a technical role in a big company like EA? Because I know a lot of people do have you know, aspirations of, you know, these studios that they played games from, you know, when they grew up or, you know, they're playing games now and they want to, you know, work for those studios, you know, what advice would you give? And then on top of that, what advice would you give of, you know, balance between work and, you know, your personal side, especially now that you have kids? Um, so if you're just entering the game industry, I would try to get a job on a game you know is going to ship because if you're working like a more independent fashion or on a more pie in the sky project that doesn't seem to have a, an end in sight, you are in cancel country at that point. And you could spend years, of, you could still learn stuff, but having stuff to show for on your resume is to build your next, you should be thinking about your next role. That's why when you're early on, I think you should try to get on titles that will ship. Because um, uh, it's a big deal to ship a game. A lot of them don't. And it you can point to projects you've worked on when you're out there looking for your next gig. Um, in terms of loyalty to a company, um, frankly, companies will try to blow up a lot of smoke up your ass. But loyalty goes both ways, and it rarely goes in your direction as much as they expect it in their direction. So um, always be open to an opportunity you can't refuse. Definitely keep your resume up to date. Stay interested. Doesn't mean you have to talk to every recruiter that pokes you on LinkedIn. They they they're out there. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think you should also think about like. What do you really want to do? Why are you here? What do you want to achieve? Um, is it realistic? Like, like, is someone going to hand you the keys of, are you going to be creative director of the next GTA in two years? No, 
<laughs> Absolutely not. That's not going to happen. Um, in terms of work-life balance, I, I think you should just defend it. Um, you try to find a gig that supports it. And um, that's hard on the independence scene because those companies live and die by their projects. Uh, so uh, it's easier to find inside of established studios or established franchises, I think, because they they work, they're more like clockwork. They, they're not going to get derailed and ask people to like, you know, put their shoulder against the wheel for 24 hours a day to make a game, but you don't get that time back. So don't work your weekends to make someone else rich. Full stop. Even if you think you enjoy it, you'll be a better game developer by time spent away from making games. Yeah, I think that's definitely good advice. That's something I've learned now that I'm 31 years old. Again, not super old, but a lot, you know, you know, older and wiser than I was just five, ten years ago. And that's definitely something I've learned. You know, sometimes taking that break to, you know, it's like that analogy. Sometimes you have to stop chopping the trees down to rest, sharpen your axe, and then get back to it. Sometimes that's taking a holiday. It might be taking, you know, going on a walk, you know, half an hour lunchtime. And especially when you're remote, which there's so many opportunities to be remote now, you can, you know, do things that if you're in the office, even if you're, you know, not in a meeting, you know, randomly at 2 p.m., uh, I doubt your boss would like you getting up and going for a half an hour walk. Even if you stayed an extra half an hour, it probably wouldn't be liked if you've taken your lunch break. Whereas at home, if you know you're probably, you've got no meetings, nobody's really going to contact you, but you got your phone anyway in case, you know, you can do that. You know, you, or, or, you know, you can take that break, maybe even spend it with family or if you have friends nearby and they're in a similar situation, you know, meet up with them. That's definitely something, you know, to value. And the other thing I would say is, and this is still something I struggle with, try and be in the moment and enjoy that time off you're taking. Because if you're taking time off, but you're basically just constantly thinking about, you know, work and you're on your phone looking at something about work, whether it's emails or researching or something, or you're, you're, you're you know, you're just thinking, oh, when can I go back to my laptop just to look at a couple of things? It's, you're not really taking that break that, no, you, that you know, that, you know, you know, that energy back. It's, it just doesn't work. It's like putting your phone on charge for one minute, then disconnecting it, and then you know having a go on it, and then putting it back. And like you're not going to get very far with the battery like that. Like you, you need to like leave it charge up, and that's the same with you know you because I've got you know holiday coming up next week, and I'm going to be away for ten days, and I, I and I'm saying to myself, you know, enjoy it. like. I'm spending the money. So like the money's getting spent, you know, you know, regardless, try and enjoy it. You know, I'm going to have a private pool, you know, just be in that moment and don't try and feel like, Oh, I have to achieve something in that day or in those 10 days, especially in terms of work. Yeah. And you don't want to contribute to an expectation of availability when people are supposed to be using their time. Your time off is a part of your compensation. Yeah. Use it, spend it, and delete Slack from your phone. I always delete Slack and Outlook from my phone. I only use Outlook for work email. I won't because I don't even muscle memory want to open it. Like I just want to 
leave it alone and stay disconnected because you can't get that rest you're talking about by ha- keeping like one foot in the pond. You, you just got to keep away. And sometimes you have to stay away longer. Like when I've been working a lot and I was working a lot of overtime, I had this three week period of time off where it took a full seven days before I felt like I was even starting to get rest. Like it took that long for my brain to disconnect, even though I wasn't checking email or doing any of that. So it's, it's a luxury. Don't squander it. Um, you know, you know, FOMO or whatever it is that's keeping you like looking back at your work. There's a few people like VPs and stuff and very big companies that there have this kind of expectation attached to their role where they're available but it's usually not for rank and file developers. So don't encourage it. Don't be a part of it. No, definitely. You know, enjoy that time off, you know, and be in the moment because you're not going to get that time back, especially when you get a bit older, you have kids, you have a family because, you know, it is that typical thing. But now that I am a father, my daughter's almost 16 months old. I do look back and think, where did those 16 months go? Uh, and it's just like 60 months of gun like that. And, you know, I wanted to go to university, age 18. Uh, I, I just look at the 16 months that I've gone and I think it won't be long till she's three, four, that's school time. It won't, it won't be long till she's like 11, 12, that's high school time. And then after that, she it's, you know, university time. And then she's, you know, gone. You know, she she's away for a few years. So it's it's very easy to just get busy with work and busy with stuff that... Frankly, in 10 years, most of it, you're not going to be that fussed about. Obviously, you know, get your work done, do the household chores that you need to get done. You know, don't let your life, you know, in going to disarray, get stuff done, but enjoy that time with the people that you want to enjoy it with. Because ultimately, I think that will bring you the most happiness as well. Oh, I agree too. Like, I, the job you're working now is likely not the job you'll be working five years from now. Mm. Um, the fam, your family is way more important. Um, and those, those time with kids, like that's precious. You never get that back. So, you know, that's, a, that's an investment. Um, and if anything, what I've appreciated about the pandemic and that kind of the forced transition to work from home was I got to spend a lot more time with my children than I would have otherwise, mm. because they were home too. And, um, I got to be like like front and center for a lot of stuff that I would have missed because they would have gone to their office and I would have gone to mine. Mm. I mean, how old are your you know kids? Are they still young or are they pretty old now? They're eleven. Okay, so they're still still kids. <laughs> they're, they're still children, you know, per se. Um, I mean, are they into gaming like you? Do you are they into the technical side as well? Uh yeah, they're they're huge in the games. They they've they've explored like programming apps online that have like different like okay, now solve this problem in Python. Now solve this problem in in C++. So they they've they've explored it. They've used Scratch and stuff. Um but like they they're not into it hardcore. I mean, they like Minecraft as much as everyone else their age, that kind <laughs> of thing. Um but yeah, they they have um they spend a lot of time on switch. Well, the amount of time that we permit on switch. So what's it? So, so talking about, you know, time for gaming, you know, 
how do you manage and handle that as someone that's in the industry as a gamer yourself but with the current technology landscape you know like one how much are you providing you know them in terms of time and how is that balanced and like what's your opinions of that well we have a prescribed amount of game time um and they have a certain amount of time they can spend on it each day and we have some other expectations of them we call it a privilege it's like they don't get to play every day like um they don't get to uh, necessarily play for the same amount like if we're like hey we got these other obligations we're gonna do like you know that means it's going to cut into what here's your regular game time during school it's more prescribed because there's just fewer hours in the day um in summer we're a little bit more open-ended but they have a lot of interests away from games as well so it's, they just go do the other things as once they set the games down um we recently purchased phones but like we have this like blanket ban on like social media like like they will not own a device that i pay for myself or pay for the service then use social media i absolutely think social media is is rot for children oh yeah um, for sure like uh, tiktok i mean all of them to an extent but the way tiktok is instagram is and obviously you know facebook being one of the more original ones it's it's just insane and, and another one that i don't think people you know comprehend is you know youtube like it's it's another one that can really just you know rot your brain if you're just watching just rubbish on there and just because again it's the same thing scrolling once you watch one you know the next one automatically plays or you just scroll and you know you look for recommended stuff it is just social effectively a social media platform but with video yeah we we don't give them open-ended access to youtube Uh, we it's purpose driven it's like you have to have a purpose to use youtube Mm -hmm. like like if you're looking at a like um, fix your air conditioner, that's what we like at, at YouTube. Like if they're looking for like I'm at this incredibly hard challenge in Donkey Kong Country, it's like okay, yeah, you can look at how they did that. Yeah. Um, so it's like purpose driven. They're not just allowed to scroll and browse endlessly. And, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we do. I mean, I think we've always had that in society where we do mindlessly. You know, it wasn't scrolling initially, but you know, we do mindlessly just jump from one to another. It's like, do you remember before the age of Netflix and Hulu, where we would have, you know, we would be on TV, but then we would just sort of, you know, flick through channels and try and find the least boring thing to pass the time by. And I and I think that was very toxic back then. That's just gone to another level with you know Netflix, with YouTube, and with you know social media like TikTok as well. the first infinite scroll was channel surfing. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I think. I think the thing is, if you have, like, say, if you have a purpose, and you know, like, there's nothing wrong with watching Netflix. If let's say your latest show, you know, the latest season of a show that you really love is out, you want to watch that show, and then you go on, you watch or you watch that episode that's out that week. If it's a you know a weekly release, and then you go off it, that's fine. But when you go on it you know automatically when you just get home and you just you're just scrolling for like sometimes you, you people can spend 30 to 60 minutes scrolling <laughs> and not even like actually watching something the act of scrolling itself can be very terrifying but and then they just watching something they probably don't really want to watch and i think yeah, that's, I, that's a real I, problem i think it's almost like there's 
the if people have talked about this with Netflix, particularly that there's too much choice. Mm-hmm. So it has to be recommendation driven. Like, and I look for recommendations from not Netflix itself, from other sources. Like, like I'll read articles like, here's the the, the coolest shows that are about to drop off of Netflix. Would be like, is there something yeah. on there that I want to watch? Yeah. I rarely am successful just scrolling through it, finding something that no. I will like. You never. Um, so I, I like when I learn about something and I know it's going to stick around for a while, I'll stick it in my list. Um, but otherwise it has to be like, someone has to tell me about a cool new show. Um, and I don't subscribe to every single service. Like people are like, Oh, you got to watch that on Hulu. And I'm like, I don't have Hulu. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I buy Hulu, I need to drop something else. I want to keep it limited. Yeah. I mean, what are your services, you know, go to services then streaming uh, right I, now? I've had Netflix the longest for sure. I've had Netflix since they had DVDs. Um, okay, so and- like re, re, you know, really back in the day thing because I kind of remember those days, but I never you know used that service. And I think they did video games on that service as well. I think a friend of mine used to do that, but I only used it when they actually did the streaming stuff. I remember using it before House of Cards, you know, came out and then House of Cards was that big one, you know, that first, that the, I think it was the first title that they made themselves and it was huge. Yeah. It was their, their HBO moment, House of Cards and mm. Orange is the New Black. So I've had that. Um, we have uh, like Amazon just because we are prime. Uh, you get a video service with prime. Um, and there's some, there's some good stuff on there and just like, Sometimes movies you want to watch are on there, um, and we have Disney Plus. That's although I'm I'm eyeing Disney Plus as one I might not keep. Uh, okay, well, why not? You don't think there's enough value, enough content on there? Well, the, there's a lot of kids' the, content as well. Yeah, but we have no shortage of that um, on the other services. Mm. It's uh, more of like they they have like kind of these lost leader shows where they spend a lot of money like the Mandalorian and Loki, but then they have some other shows where it's like, they're not, they're just not as good and they're not spending amount the amount. Um, mm. And I know they can't spend infinite amount of money on shows just to retain and grow their subscribers modestly every month. I know the economics, um, but it's just like, doesn't mean I need to send them that money. Uh, so we'll see. It's also, it costs less than it like two coffees like if i go to the coffee shop near my house with my spouse so it's also like it's really not that much money so that's why it just sticks around for so long although netflix is getting up there where every time i see it i'm like i don't use it much are the kids still using it if once they go to college i might not be a netflix subscriber anymore yeah i mean netflix in general it's it's had a rough two or three years it's one of those things you know they were one of the early guys they did it so well and they paved, you know, the way for all these other services and these other services have come along. Like obviously Disney had their huge library. They was able to leverage, uh, you know, they released and they had a lot of content. And I think the platform as a technical service wasn't too bad either. That was my hesitation with Disney, but it, I don't think it was too bad. Amazon's one, not the best, but they don't need to concentrate on it, to be honest. It's, they got so many other businesses that they have, whereas Netflix, it's literally just that. Like, <laughs> if their streaming service just went down tomorrow, that's their business gone. Yeah, there's nothing else. Like, no, they don't no. have, they don't release in theaters. They don't, um, I mean, they are nascently in games. Um, but yeah, they're, they don't have all these other business interests. No, they don't. 
So, I mean, that's all of the, you know, main questions that I've got. I've got a few just generic questions, you know, quick fire questions that I, you know, ask to, you know, my guests at the end. Uh, do you have a few minutes to go for them, quick fire? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, would you, if you was to run your own company, would you rather run a 10 person or a 1000 person company and why? Oh, geez. I guess I'd want to either run a 10 person company with a great idea or a thousand person company with uh, lots of ideas. Okay. So, uh, I wouldn't want to start a 10 person company unless I had a really great idea that I felt had a lot of, you know, there was wind in them sales. Otherwise yeah, moving parts that was uh, that were required. Yeah. Um, given where I'm at in my career, I'm more likely to end up in the upper echelons of a more a thousand person company hmm. and I'm not, and I'm less likely to join a startup. So probably the latter thousand person okay. company. So would you rather have 5 million US dollars up front or half a million a year for the rest of your life and why? Oh, definitely the half a million a year, um, especially if that's after taxes. Yeah, let's just say after taxes, yeah. Um, yeah, no, like that's in that ends up being a lot more money anyway, assuming I, I live that long. Um, and I already have my the rest of my income. So um, not that I would say no to either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you mean it's one of those things where it, it, if you have to choose, yeah, you have a choice, but otherwise you're not going to say no. Yeah, I mean, if, if like if I really wanted to retire five million right now, that, that could do that totally. Yeah, like, I get the job done. So you know, what's your favorite board game, video game, and movie? Oh, geez. I'll have to be circumspect. Like, so my favorite board game is Axis and Allies. Although friendships end with that game. <laughs> and, and rules mongering and arguments. Uh, that's, a great, that's a great game. I also think Pandemic, um, which I played long before the actual Pandemic, is an excellently designed board game. Um, my favorite Gen 4 video game is The Last Guardian. Um, probably my favorite game overall is the Shadow of the Colossus, um, but it's hard to pick. There's so many great games in there, and I can get down into genres too. Um, my favorite uh, EA game is Mirror's Edge Catalyst, um, and my favorite movie, if I had to pick one, is probably Millennium Actress. Uh, it's a Satoshi Kon film, it's an animated film from Japan, and I. I miss him dearly. He died too young. Uh, he was an amazing director. But if, you, if you've if you slapped on Millennium Actress, go see that. It's great. Okay, I'll definitely put that on my list. So what video game are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to finishing Dead Space. <laughs> uh, the I'm guessing the remaster you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the, the remaster. I've been playing that. I've been also... I've been, problem is i'm bouncing between two ragnarok and dead space so i'm getting far and neither yeah um, uh, i haven't played ragnarok yet. i need to play that i started dead space i was about a couple hours into because i really love the original and number two and you know when they announced that remake i was 
excited for it. Bought it again. It's just so many other games to just play with. I'm in the middle of Jedi Survivor, Horizon Two, Horizon VR. Trying to think, Stray. Like too many games. Yeah, my son just finished Stray. He really liked it. Um, I I'm looking forward to playing Ghost of Tsushima, which is in my that's my primary backlog title. If I finish these oh, other two, so like go and play. Forget every other game. <laughs> if that's in your backlog, it's so good. Go and play that game. When you play that game, obviously they've had some updates now for PS5, and they got the native, you know, language, you know, support as well with the lip syncing. Like before, it wasn't there. Yeah, it was only for English. But like the graphics on that, even on a PS4 Pro. It's it beats most games today, and the that is a game that feels like a piece of art. When you look at that, and you're you know riding around on the horse, you just like you can tell they put effort into this. Yeah, that's when I'm. Yeah, so now I have to bounce between three games. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, unreleased, uh, I got to answer really answer the question. Unreleased game. I'm looking forward to the next Insomniac Spider-Man game because Insom- Spider-Man 2019 was. A- fantastic game i platinumed that game it's the only (laughs) game at that point that i had platinumed oh was that your first was that your first plat yeah so um yeah i'm looking forward to it like uh i played through the miles morales game with my son and uh it's yeah it's it's those games are just a blast i think spider-man's the perfect video game superhero because of Mm -hmm. his mechanics it's just so fun to swing around and do stuff with spidey yeah, and he like it works really well with that sort of over the top, you know, nature that you have in video games compared to movies. It, you know, it definitely translates well compared to some others. You know, saying that, Batman with the Arkham games translated very well. They did that very well. But you know, I feel like Spider Man. I mean, they've had Spider Man games over the years for for a very long time now, and they've always been pretty decent. For, you know, many of them have, but the you know the Insomniac ones have you know been amazing looking forward to number two as well i mean insomniac in general always make good games you know they're a solid developer yeah no they they know they they know what they're doing um and they they know where my wallet is when they make spider-man game oh yeah i I mean they're one of those you know last few studios that really haven't made a shift to you know multiplayer you know you got them you got naughty dog uh trying to think you know who else is still out there, you know, what Guerrilla Games, that's still doing really great single-player experiences that I'm happy to just, you know, give them $60, $80, $100, you know, whatever the price is in America nowadays, uh, because you know you're going to get a good experience with them and the storyline is going to be good. Yeah, for sure. Like, they're one to watch. Oh, yeah. So, final question, two-parter. Does money buy you happiness and what does a good life mean to you? Uh, so I'm going to lean on a quote from my father for the money one. Um, he said, money won't buy you happiness, but not having it will make you miserable. Especially in America. (laughs) Um, uh, so I'll, I'll stick with that. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second one? You know, what does a good life mean to you? Oh, the, the purpose of life is to, to love and be loved. Full stop. Like, I have great friends. I have a wonderful family. Um, in relationships that don't work, you know, just uh, there are people out there that are worth your time. 
And mm-hmm. you, those are the most important things I think you do in your life. Like you, very few people will win a Nobel Prize, but most people will find love and give and receive it. So I think that's, for me, that's life. And I feel fortunate to have a great um, network of friends. I work in a community of game developers that like, the best thing about going to GDC is running into people you worked with years ago that you have hold in high esteem. Um, you've really talked about recharging the battery for game developers, that kind of, those kinds of connections is one reason I would think it would be very hard to leave the industry and work in some other area of tech. Um, so yeah, yeah. Give love, receive love. That's, that's my recipe to have a happy life and have enough money, but don't be obsessed with money. Um, if, you, if money follows a great idea, awesome. But um, yeah, I think it's much more important the relationships in my life for what sustain me. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something I'm coming to realize more as I'm getting older, you know, got married, you know, having kids as well. And and the other thing is, it's not a all situation. It's not, you know, you get an, you know, win a Nobel Prize, you know, start some business that does really well or have good meaningful relationships with your family, with, you know, some, you know, key friends as well. And I'd say not too many, you know, just having like a select few that are really good friends that feel like extended family. It's not a matter of if you've got one, the other doesn't matter. So you get the Nobel Prize, having a solid family, having, you know, people that you want to be with and they want to be with you is, you know, very meaningful. But then likewise, if you have the family, but again, not necessarily a Nobel Prize, but having a good career that you enjoy and that you strive for is also very good as well. So it's definitely understanding that, you know, both can work together and both can be complementary uh, and not going too much, you know, one way or another. Because, you know, like you say, you've you got to have enough money because you could be so loving and be there for your family. But if you don't make enough money to really put food on the table properly and you're always struggling, then that's not a recipe for happiness either for you or, you know, the people around you. For sure. And being fortunate to work in a job that you actually like, that's actually a tremendous privilege. Not many people get to do something as part of their participation in capitalism that they actually really are invested in and enjoy. Um, so go home and like, they'll play like you, you, you know, you'll play games, you know, when you can, like there's so many, you know, people that will do a job. It's like, you know, if you have an accountant in some regular, you know, account, generic accounting firm, they're not going home and doing accounts for fun. Not like, well, most of them aren't. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> that sounds, but you know, not not to crush other people's joy. If they, if that's the thing. Like, if you want to look at the books and fall asleep to someone else's ledger, then by all means. I mean, that's fine if you do, but you just statistically don't find that. I've never met an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or any of these, you know, you know, more typical professions that outside of it they are absorbing as much as they can, uh, you know, about it because they love it that much. Like they actually try and disconnect once they leave work. Yeah, fair. Um, I think the most like game developers are probably academics, like who are really, yes. um, especially the non-tenured ones, (laughs) like that they're really driven by what they do. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. So that's all the questions I've got, Evan. I want to thank you for taking, you know, almost two and a half hours of your day to come onto the podcast today. 
you're really insightful, learning about, you know, you work up, you know, Frostbite, the old Republic, Bioware, etc. And hopefully, you know, everyone enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned for the next episode of FireDev. And, you know, thank you, Evan, for coming on. Oh, it was my pleasure, and I wish you all the success with the podcast. It's it's really a, a cool thing you have going, and I, I hope you can keep it going. Thank you very much, and you know I hope so too as well. It's almost at the one year mark, and almost you know fifty two episodes. This is episode number forty. I want to say forty five, forty six. This is this will be episode forty six when it goes live because we just had forty four, forty five is you know someone else, and you know forty six should be yours. So yeah, it's going well so far, and but it's only going well because there's people like you that do these you know have these interesting jobs at these interesting companies that people want to hear about but you can't generally get that sort of you know feedback and that sort of you know exposure on youtube in general or on spotify and you're gracious and gracious enough to say yes i'll come on the podcast so you know thank you evan for coming on yeah my pleasure thank you take care everyone bye